I have a theory on this. Um, you know, there's all these like schools of thought that say, you know, launch early, launch often, you know, speed to market, yeah. uh, which all that stuff is true. Like you have to be fast. You can't be slow. If you're slow, then you're, ne you're never going to go anywhere. So you still have to be action oriented. But I yeah. think a lot of these like, you know, these theories of like you're you should be embarrassed of your first MVP. All right, I just had this guy, Nick, on my pod. Uh, totally blew me away uh, the entire episode. I was on the edge of my seat. Like, what's this guy going to say next? Uh, you know, he built multiple companies. He sold his last company to Toptal for a mid-eight-figure valuation. Uh, you know, and, and it's really, you know, he's a Peter Thiel fellow. Uh, he breaks down the eight things that he thinks are really important to tech startup founders. And we go through most of the episode is going through the eight things that he thinks are really important uh, there's a few in there that might surprise you, uh, especially number eight. Uh, you know, it actually contradicts common advice for startup founders. But uh, we got into some really good dialogue about, you know, why we think differently than what, you know, the common advice people normally say is. Uh, but yeah, listen, this this episode's crazy. So uh, you got you to gotta hear it. All right. So I've got Nick on the pod today. Uh, Nick, I don't even know how to introduce you. Uh, you've got like, you know, you just blew my mind with your story. So uh, just like a couple of quick points. I'm just going to rattle off some of the things you said to me and we can just like, I don't even know where we're going to start here. But uh, you were born in Russia. You're mining crypto at age 14. Uh, you were buying all these GPUs and, and uh, you know, you created a marketplace that was connecting traders together. Uh, you're like in high school at the time. Uh, later, you joined 500 startups. You built another company, uh, We Love No Code, which was a, a marketplace for talent, uh, similar to like Upwork or Toptal. You sold that company to Toptal. I think you said you got to like a $52 million peak valuation uh, in your early 20s. Uh, sold that company. You've exited that. You're now like doing stuff with Metaverse, VR, AR. Uh, just launched another company with Smart Glass, you know, Smart Glass uh, AI Assistant. Uh, you're a Peter Thiel fellow. Uh, you know, I don't even know where, where to where to go from there. But uh, you know, thanks for coming on the show today, man. Huh, man, thank you a lot for inviting. Uh, it's it's an honor to be here, and uh, I'm honestly very excited. Uh, yeah, you're pretty much right. It's kind of like all my life in just uh, a few words. Um, I'm you know excited where I am right now. Very, very excited to hopefully where I will be in the future. Uh, with uh, you know opportunities like on AR, VR markets, and so on, I think that there are some huge changes and shifts that will happen in our daily routine uh, very, very, very soon. So uh, we're excited to talk about that maybe sometime later during the pod. Nice man, nice. Let's start with like mining crypto in Russia at age fourteen. Like your kids are probably <laughs> out like you know playing soccer and or your friend sorry your friends are probably out playing soccer and you know like running around and just you know normal kid stuff and you're like in your parents basement like putting together gpus and like racking servers is that pretty much like how it was yeah it's honestly pretty much like it was uh honestly i think uh i should say thank you to the fact that i didn't really have a lot of friends uh in my childhood which actually led me to you know just like grind and like do stuff i spent most of my childhood in front of computer which was actually my friend my best friend um in like when I had time, I either played games or I traded crypto just because it was kind of very interesting to me. Uh, where I was born, we have kind of 
like a bad financial system, I would say, um, not very well set up, um, and where the banks can, you know, just like easily block your transactions just because they want to, um, and uh, uh, or you know by the government and so on. So this is why it was like super super interesting. And yeah, I uh, came from school. Sometimes instead of school, I just came home and I just like put all those rigs, um, you know, with like eight uh, GPUs each, and one by one I build them, and then eventually I just sold them to my teacher actually <laughs> for twenty thousand dollars. It was a very well ride. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what teacher salaries are like in Russia, but I don't know any teachers in the U.S. that be able to afford a twenty thousand dollar pack of GPUs. <laughs> that was uh, that was like uh, um, a teacher. He was actually from the university, and uh, our school just uh, basically asked him to come to our uh, school, you know, like to, to teach just like a couple of days, basically. And we quickly became friends because he was also kind of entrepreneurial as well as me. Um, and as soon as I told him like what I'm doing, he was like, oh, wow, this is great. Like, Nick, I'm very interested. And uh, he just bought it uh, for himself and also for his son that uh, was super interested in crypto. And eventually, you know, they just like started to, you know, to continue, uh, they continued uh, building those rigs. Um, so, yeah. Nice, man. So what, uh, so you had like a full, like, you know, you had eight, eight GPUs. Uh, what do you, is it Bitcoin you were mining or what, what were you mining? I think, uh, I mined mostly Ethereum, uh, because this is what you usually mine on, uh, GPUs. And, uh, I also mined the first Ethereum classics. I'm not sure, even sure if it's now it's, it's still a thing. Uh, but I remember like literally, you know, the first day when Ethereum classic came out and I was like, you know, mining like the first of them. So it was, uh, it was very crazy. <laughs> Uh, like nice, all those, uh, you know, wealth experiences. How many Ethereum did you mine? Do, do you know exactly how oh. many? Are? Oh, that's a great question. I want to say, don't you remember? I think, not to lie, um, I think maybe more than 20, 40 total Ethereums. Uh, they're now worth, worth like what, like $2,000, right? But then they were yeah. worth much, much, much less, obviously. Um, so I, you know, I mined them, I sold them, I bought more GPUs. Um, <laughs> I left, I was left with a little bit of Ethereum and then, you know, everything started to grow. So honestly, I was just like it basically to the fact where I am right now. So you didn't huddle on that stuff? Um, a little bit, you know, maybe like 20% uh, of everything. Uh, I was more interested in like scaling into like just buying more and more and more and more and running as many GPUs so that like my whole room will be filled. When my parents walked into the room, like they could just, couldn't just like step anywhere basically because it was all filled with, you know, video cards and GPUs. So that was the goal. What did your parents do for a living or what do they do for a living? Uh, my parents are you know pretty like normal other people in uh where i come from uh they earn around like 200 month 200 dollars per month uh which is kind of like you know like normal in um in 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 russia um for the us obviously you know it will sound like very fun and uh you know it just doesn't make sense that people can survive on that but people actually can um so my mom she's uh she owns like a very small shop selling tea uh like chinese tea and so on um, and uh, my father, he's an engineer. He works on uh, like, you know, big uh, ships and like, you know, just like building, you know, not computers, but um, uh, yeah, like just doing mechanical work for them, basically. So oh, that's cool. Um, what, what did your parents think when you're like mining Ethereum in your bedroom? <laughs> um, honestly, my parents were very supportive and uh, I really, really appreciate them for all that. Uh, my mom, she's kind of entrepreneur by herself. 
she was pretty supportive until it was like 10 p.m. Because after 10 p.m. she told me to go to sleep <laughs> every day, unfortunately. So I couldn't stay very late. Um, and my father, he just like literally helped me, you know, like uh, advised me and guided me on how to build those things. Because, uh, you know, like, yeah, I'm a 14 year old guy. I, I'm not very good with tech. And my father just sometimes like guided me, okay, like, you know, here I need to buy this thing and here I need to buy that and that, that. So uh, I really do appreciate, you know, my parents for help and everything that they did for me because I think this is all because of them. So oh, that's so awesome, man. Shout out to the fam. <laughs> yeah, fam is, is, is the best. So yeah, I think we should literally everything that people achieve is just only because of their parents and nothing else, in my opinion. Uh, that's awesome, man. It's a, it's a great, it's a great starter story. So uh so then you, you told me you went to college in Russia. Uh, so I guess you're like 18 at this point, uh, 18 or 19. Uh, but you dropped out of college uh, and you became a Teal Fellow. So uh, for the listeners, if you don't know what a Teal Fellow is, basically uh, Peter Teal, who is uh, a really famous VC. He was one of the founders of PayPal, uh, Palantir, m- many other uh you know, really interesting companies o- over the years. Uh, very, very famous in Silicon Valley. Uh, he pays people to drop. Out, he pays smart people who uh, are entrepreneurial to drop out of college and build their uh, their their tech company. So, uh, so you became a Teal Fellow. Uh, how did you? So it, you're in Russia. Uh, how did you get connected with Peter Teal? So, firstly, I became a Teal Fellow when I was already in the U.S. So I'm I I got it a little bit later, and I dropped out on the, of the university um like sooner that i got teal fellowship so i didn't really need teal fellowship to drop out basically i was just like not interested to waste my life sitting in the you know auditorium and like listening to some you know old guys like 60 years old or just talking about how to build using uh assembler or you know like anything like that <laughs> so uh but teal fellowship i got like you know just actually like uh um actually it is for this year um after i came to the us how did it happen? Um, I honestly just um, when I arrived to the US, I was like, you know, sitting in uh, the um, in, in one of the hacker houses, and uh, I saw some person was like, you know, working on the computer. So I asked him, "What what are you doing?" And he was like, "Oh, I'm filling this application for Teal Fellowship." And I was like, "What is that?" Uh, and it was again, I don't know, maybe like less than a year ago. Um, and he's like. Oh, you know, this is this great thing where you apply, they give you like money, you can drop out, um, and so on and so forth. And I was like, wow, this is interesting. Um, and I just quickly checked the site, I applied, um, and uh, I basically got in. So it was like super random, honestly. I didn't expect it. I, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't sure. I was, um, I was thinking they would honestly decline me because like I'm some random kid, like somewhere from you know in the middle of nowhere. But I was lucky, and they, and I got in. So this is how it happened. Yeah, I, I didn't even know that he honors like retroactive dropouts. Like you already dropped out, but uh, and you're already building your thing. And uh, but you know that's cool that that they they yeah. uh, you know let you in for that. Uh, yeah. So did you meet Peter Thiel, or was it just through his people? Or yeah, it was uh, mostly with his team basically. So his team is is a great team, you know, who participates in the process and like you know talks with the folks and so on. So it's mostly with uh, with the team itself. 
all, all, all the process was. Peter is a you know very busy guy, you know, like uh, working on multiple things. He, I'm not sure if he has time to, you know, to like filter like you know hundreds and thousands of people who apply every year. So <laughs> I'm sure he did in the early days when the Peel in the, the Teal yep. Fellowship started. I'm sure that was just him like just meeting people in Silicon Valley and saying yeah. like, oh hey, you shouldn't be going to Stanford. You should be building your thing and just like leave yes. right now. Here's 200 grand. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was uh, very hands-on, um, you know, like especially in, in the first few batches. But uh, uh, right now, you know, it just like grew like so big that uh, and Peter also has like a lot of more going on, right? Because like now uh, he just, you know, he, he, he just built much, much more, more. He participates in many, many more activities um, and like teaching in Stanford and uh, many more. So, yeah. Some of the stuff he does, man, he's like a bold guy. Like I, I always think like, and now anytime I think about Peter Thiel, I think about when Gawker outed him for being gay and, <laughs> uh, and then he like basically put like, he's like, all right, you're going to, you're going to do that. He's like, all right, I'm going to hire 30 lawyers and their full-time job is going to be to like sue you and just like shut down your entire platform. So, mm. uh, yeah, mm. like literally just like put together a staff of lawyers and just like attacked the hell out of Gawker for like firing the first shot at him. Uh, like some of that stuff, like, I, I don't know if that's a good or I don't know if that's a net good or a net bad for society. I, I don't think Gawker is a, probably a net good for society to begin with, but, uh, just like, you know, the fact that like, that's how he operates. Like, you know, he's just like all guns blazing, ready to go at any second uh is just like just you know it, it i'm sure that has something to do with why he's super successful too <laughs> um honestly i don't know and honestly i didn't even know about the story um so i cannot give like a lot of context on this um i think it's to the fact that i'm just uh you know like very focused on like you know grinding and doing the same thing and i'm very very bad with like you know politics and so on when people tell me about like some politic politics activities of like one another person i was like oh really wow <laughs> so <laughs> i'm like super super bad at you know what is happening uh but i you know what what i really love about people is like what they built and what they achieved and i know that peter built paypal i know how he built it i know it was very hard i know he like if it's not him, you know, Facebook might not be where it is right now, uh, sorry, Meta uh, these days. Um, and, uh, you know, he also like helped a lot of, a lot of, a lot of other people in Teal Fellowship and Founders Fund. So for that, I'm very, very appreciative. Um, what else, you know, happened outside of that? I'm honestly really not really aware. Um, so yeah, just like all the politics stuff, I think there are much, much more qualified people who can talk about that. <laughs> yeah yeah cool so um all right so you you uh let, let's let's catch back up in the story here so you were uh you moved to the u.s after uh dropping out of college in in russia and uh you got the teal fellowship was that before or after you joined 500 startups it was after so um i was still in russia and then i joined 500 startups um, and uh, in 500 they basically started my second company which uh, is a talent marketplace we love no code right and I've been working on that for three years. Um, I've been building the team from Russia, and then I left Russia even before the war. And I was just started to travel. I traveled to like at least 30 different countries. Uh, why? Simply because um, I was trying to hustle my way into the United States, and my visa got declined a couple of times. Um, and uh, I was just staying in different countries for usually not more than a month so that I don't get deported back to, back to Russia. <laughs> so I go to the country, I stay there for a month, and then I move to another one. 
Um, and eventually uh, I got my visa and uh, I moved here right away. Um, here I continue the company. I moved my team members uh, from Europe basically to the US as well, um, get the TEAL fellowship and then starting the company and now basically working on, on something else. So. Yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, and for the listeners, if you don't know 500 startups, it's like a accelerator program similar to Y Combinator, uh, basically where, you know, people like Nick take their companies and just go through like a, a rigorous boot camp to go from, you know, zero to, you know, having product market fit or having some sort of, you know, early signs of traction with the business. And, yeah. you know, then they kind of set the startups free and go out into the wild and do their thing. Uh, so yeah. that's really awesome, man. That's, that's just amazing. And like, what blows my mind, you're like, you're 24 years old that like you were saying before, like all this stuff you've accomplished, we haven't even gotten to the end of your story yet. And like all this stuff you've accomplished, uh, is just like um, super amazing. I'm honestly, uh, first to thank you a lot for your uh, kind words. Uh, second, I don't really think that like age is, um, you know, something great here because there are a lot of, a lot of other younger people, uh, like, you know, 20 years old and so on, even until fellowship who achieved much, much more, more success. Um, so I think we should have a shout out for them and not to, you know, some like old guys like me, honestly, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, thank you a lot for the kind words. And, uh, yeah, um, there are a lot of other, you know, great people who obviously also supported me during the journey, uh, such as again, my, my family, uh, to whom I called every uh week at least two times even though i actually didn't see them in two years um yeah just because like i cannot get back to russia and i don't really want to um and uh, like my investors and my employees and uh my friends and everyone else so thank you a lot to them for all that yeah that that's awesome man so uh all right well let's keep going so uh you did 500 startups you and then you had before that you founded we love no code which is a marketplace uh you know you've since sold the company to top tool uh but you know it's a marketplace for uh, i guess engineers or uh what, what's kind of i guess no code engineers yeah 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 there is um a lot of different tools that allow you to build a site uh without writing code like webflow bubble Airtable, and so on a lot of times those no-code tools need customizations, usually with code and so on. Not only that, but they also need like advices, mentorship and support. Because, you know, when you're exploring some tool, uh, there is a huge, um, how to say, like um, ramp that you need to crawl in order to actually start building successfully with that tool. So we were building a marketplace for you to match with people who are already experienced in those tools so that they could either help you to build for you or help you by mentoring you um, and in like more than 400 different of those tools. And I honestly really, really like this idea. I really like the market. I really like the idea of building something by yourself without writing code. Uh, but unfortunately, it I worked on this for like three years and uh, my investors were like, Nick, you know, okay, you're doing this thing and, you know, we kind of like hit, um, hit the ceiling, basically. It, st it stopped growing really aggressively. So, um, and like, I just kept talking to like a lot of, a lot of, a lot of other people and they were all basically the same. Like, Nick, you know, you're a smart guy and you're building a cool thing. Um, and now, you know, your company is just, you know, basically growing like it's just a couple of percentages, months or months. And I was like, yeah, you're actually right. And, uh, this is how we made the decision to sell. Um, and, um, then you know we just like researched other talent marketplaces. We saw that top tell is the most the closest to us, and we also actually copied like a lot of uh, SEO techniques from top tell as well. So which is why our traffic was like super 
pretty great, um, which is why Toptel was interested in us. And uh, this is how the acquisition actually happened. So cool, cool. So uh, how much money did you raise at, at We Love No Code? Totally, we raised like around $3 million. Um, and uh, we raised them in small chunks, like within basically two years time frame. Uh, it was all kind of the same round, honestly. So we just called like all one seed. Uh, but yeah, overall it was like three million. Um, so yeah. Cool. Were the investors happy with the outcome? It sounds like probably it was a pretty good one. We compensated, we compensated investors partially. Um, I, uh, it's like not a multi-billion dollar exit for investor for sure. Um, uh, it's still an exit for them. So which, you know, which I'm excited, um, uh, excited by. So now since we sold the company, I will start the next one and I'm very excited by the next one because. I will grant my previous investors also some equity in this new one if they will decide to support, uh, you know, to kind of like make sure that they like super, super, super happy, basically. <laughs> so, and we'll go from there. Nice. Did you have any well-known uh, investors on We Love No Code? Yeah, I think uh, our most well-known is uh, the Chainsmokers Band. They, they, they have like- Oh, you million. serious? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have like 30 million followers on YouTube, right? Uh, they're very nice guys, actually. Like they just recently stepped into the um, into these uh, you know VC area, but uh, they're super super supportive and uh, they know a bunch of very smart and interesting people, and they try them their best. So they're very great guys. Yeah, that's that's gotta be the most uh, you know ridiculous answer I've ever gotten for who who are your <laughs> investors? Like the chain smoker <laughs> band. <laughs> well, I mean. Like Uber got like Jay Z, right? And uh, uh, yeah, Jay Z makes more sense, I think, than the chain smokers. Like, I, I would never would have thought the chain smokers are in like the tech VC arena. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, but like now they actually have a lot of cool companies uh, under their belt. So, you know, like if I would be like people made love of them, uh, you know, when they just stepped in, like, oh, you know, these guys like trying to, you know, like uh, do play, play VC game or something. And now they have a, a lot of actually cool companies. And people don't laugh at them anymore. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think they're very smart and and can create guys overall. Wow, yeah, I, I had no idea they were doing that. That's really cool. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. do some research on that after the pod. I want to take a quick break from the episode and say, if you're enjoying this content, the best way you can say thank you is to subscribe. So if you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. And if you're on one of the podcast platforms, hit the subscribe button there as well. And also share it out to your friends and colleagues. If you find this content useful and you think other people will enjoy it as well, please send it out. And back to the episode. All right, so you grew this thing to like 50 uh, employees. I'm sure obviously your marketplace and GMV was much higher than that. Uh, you know, like you're probably like the amount of people you were like going through the marketplace was probably much higher than that. Uh, you said like 4 million ARR at the, at the you know, at the exit point and uh, I think you said about a $52 million valuation. So you, you sold this deal yeah. to Toptal. Did you stay on uh, with Toptal? No. no, no, no. My top one like uh, message to them was like, guys, I'm not interested uh, to stay. I want to do other things. Uh, I am already uh, kind of like, uh, I'm already, I'm, I'm old and I need to, you know, grind. <laughs> Dude, you keep <laughs> saying you're old, man. You're 24. <laughs> uh, well, like compared to the Silicon, you know, Silicon Valley standards, and I know, I you're like grind. a senior citizen in Silicon Valley, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But, like, 
Um, I would honestly would like to be very helpful to the people who are watching this this podcast because I spent quite a bunch of time analyzing like my three years of uh, you know what I could be working on, and I kind of prepared for this podcast actually specifically uh, like uh, a few things that I think are most important uh, learnings that I got uh, after those after all this time, and uh, I would love to people to look at my experience of like you know raising three million, uh, setting the companies, getting to a lot of employees. Um, and, uh, you know, just uh, get those uh, advices that I give to them and just, you know, take them with like a grain of salt, basically, but still imp- try to implement them into the to into their um, into their workflow in life. So number one is um, like uh, number one is basically never scale uh, before you have a very, very good product. Uh, what happened to us is that we got a lot of traction very soon uh, because we launched because, um, you know, like we launched a product hunt. Uh, we got a bunch of customers right away within like our first couple of days who paid like more than $10,000 per month. Um, and we were like, okay, you know, if we got so much money, our product probably is amazing. So let's just scale it right away. What we ended up doing is we hired people who uh, did performance marketing on Google, Facebook ads and so on. And we start to scale prematurely, not sure if our product is great. We were thinking that we'll just sp- spend a lot of money on the marketing and then uh, you know, it will like, and then we'll get customers, and then we'll like uh, reach, uh, how to say, recur them. Uh, you know, with our product basically. But what happened is we bought marketing, people came, and then they left from the product, and we were just left with nothing. Uh, so this is number one: never scale prematurely uh, before the product. And by the way, feel free to interrupt me, maybe ask clarifying questions because I'll just go. I have eight reasons, eight, eight most important things prioritized one by one uh, that I wanted to share. Um, yeah, good, keep going, so- man. Okay. That, was, that okay. first one was a good one. Okay, so number two is like never hire and never hire bad people. What uh, happened to me is that I hired like more than I think like a hundred people basically. And why I hired them? We had to hire them because we are a service-based marketplace, and when you're a service-based marketplace, you have to hire people because they need to communicate with your customers. Um, and I, being twenty years old, I was never sure, you know, how to hire correctly. I made a sheet. A lot of mistakes. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> a lot of mistakes, and uh, um, uh, I think this is like one of the most important reasons why we didn't become a billion-dollar company. Um, and my main advice here is just like try to postpone your hiring to as late as possible. And uh, if you cannot, uh, try to do everything by yourself. And if you cannot, uh, make sure that you hire the best of the best people that you are personally excited by and people you would want to work. Uh, for uh, in alternative universe, as Mark Zuckerberg says, if like you know you're not excited to be with the person in the same room, just please like stop the hiring process and just like you know do this thing by yourself and try not to hire for as long as possible. Sam Altman actually, in fact, uh, in his uh, YC interviews and early interviews, gives this as number one advice: uh, try to postpone hiring to as long as possible, and when you have to hire, try to hire as best people as possible. So this would be my number two advice, as uh, I want people to remember. Um, number three is never start the company alone. Um, and actually, this is a very interesting advice because I like to start companies alone. Um, I don't like, you know, I don't want to be slowed down by other people, and uh, you know, I don't want to wait for some like special co-founder, some magical co-founder that will just appear and we'll start the company together with. But um, there is a state stats from YC, for example. Or a little bit more uh, biased because they only invested two, two and more people uh, teams. 
uh, but still, they in their early days they invested into like a lot of teams, and uh, out of like 100 uh, startups that achieved multi-billion dollar uh, valuations, more than 97 of them had uh, multiple co-founders, basically, as far as I remember. I might be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's plus minus that amount. So um, uh, there is a very small chance to succeed if you are a solo founder, basically. Uh, if you want to build a small company, like multi-million dollar one, you need to def definitely do it alone. Uh, if you want to build something that will be potentially worth $10 billion, the only way to do that is to do it with other co-founders. Why? Because those people will give you feedbacks. Those people will tell you when you're acting stupid uh, that no one else will do for you, sadly. Even your investors, unfortunately, sometimes. So that that's why right now, uh, this is actually like one of my main reasons why I'm like doing, you know, like a podcast and like trying to talk to as many people as possible after the um, after setting is because I want to meet as many people as possible. I want to, uh, you know, talk to as many people as possible to potentially start a new company together with. Uh, next reason well, real, real is quick on number yeah. three. Mm -hmm. So, uh, hundred percent agree with you. Build, build companies with friends. Don't, don't build, you know, don't, don't build alone. Uh, but yeah. most importantly, the <laughs> right people like get partner with the right people. And you kind of said that in the hiring, like hire the right people. Yeah. But, uh, it's even more important. Like you can, you know, if someone's not the right, if you hire the wrong person, I've, I've always had like a higher fast fire fast kind of, uh, mentality. Like if someone's not working yeah. out, like don't hold on to them, but don't like overanalyze the hire. But, uh, with co-founders, you can't undo that. So once you, yeah. once you like start a company, you can't like, I mean, there is ways to, to unwind that, but it's super messy and super disruptive to the business. So it's really not easy to unwind it if you have the wrong business partner. And uh, so absolutely critical to have a business partner, I think. But it's also uh, even more critical to have the right business partner. Yeah, agree. And uh, yeah, there are some... I actually know a case where my friend, uh, like he fired his co-founder with like 40% stocks <laughs> um, ownership. And it was crazy. Um, so it's still possible, right? But um, uh, it is like very, very hard. So uh, and super your cap hard. tables why... all jacked up, and you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I would really, really advise people to, uh, you know, select who you are working with. It is super important. And I'm not sure if I'm the best person here to advise, honestly, because it's been like a month and I still didn't find my co-founder yet. But um, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm kind of like pretty big. I have like a list of like a hundred people that I'm going through uh, because I want to make sure that I'm, you know, I was like the best possible person uh, that I'll work with. So yeah, but we'll see, <laughs> we'll see. So DM me in like five years, let's see what happens. <laughs> you will be right or wrong and let's look from there. Um, so yeah, I will go to the next uh, piece of advice that I have for people prepared here. And that one is being too attached to a specific idea. Um, when um, we started the talent marketplace, we kind of like set this mission to speed up the creation of digital products. And uh, I was always telling people that the way we'll do that is by connecting people, connecting um, like uh, companies with talent, right? Uh, so we are we all should be about talent. But then AI came, um, and with AI, a lot of tasks got um, um, uh, like automated, right? Um, and like a lot of no-code tools actually also automated a lot of their tasks. So humans became much, much, much less needed than um, AI itself. And uh, my investors actually, some of my investors advised me like, Nick, you know, you should like start and you should like build like a no-code tool maybe or something. But since I'm not an engineer by myself, I was very 
um, I was very scared by the idea that I have to build my own Okla tool because it's very hard. And I, and I kept doing with, uh, you know, I kept building the marketplace and that was the huge mistake. So piece of advice, never be attached to a specific idea. If there is something kept going on in the market and you see there is a huge shift like AI, be prepared or you will die. Um, so change or you will die, adapt or you will die. Um, that will be like my, uh, my, my, my fourth piece of advice here. Um, and the uh, number fifth, I think would be, um, there is kind of like, um, I was thinking which one exactly, because there are two of them that I would put on the first, on the fifth place, sorry, but probably it's spending too much money. So we raised uh, like $3 million, right? And I spent $1.6 million on salaries to people. So we hired a lot of people and we spent a lot of money uh, because of that, we had to spend a lot of money. This is a huge mistake as well. So try not to hire people in the first place and also try not to like spend so much money on them. Obviously people need to eat and so on, but in the in the early days, you don't need people who need like more than $5,000, uh, you know, like um, per month to survive because those people will need to survive on noodles on like, you know, like uh, air bed basically in somewhere in your office. They will be grinding with you probably if you want to build a really, really successful and fast growing startup. Uh, obviously, later in the stage, you will need to hire people who are more mature, who whose salaries will be around twenty thousand dollars and so on. But my mistake was that I hired those people right away, and it was a huge, huge, huge mistake uh, because they were most interested in money, not in the you know building itself. Um, so, and the, the next thing we spent the money on was, was marketing itself. I think we spent uh, like around uh, eight hundred thousand dollars in marketing total, like ads and so on. And just don't do that. Until you have a product market fit, don't spend money on performance or anything like that. <laughs> so curious what you think here, but I think you'll probably agree with me, um, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it, I think everything you're saying, you know, product market fit is the first problem to solve. Like don't solve, yes. you know, in, if you're a startup, don't solve any problem until you've mm -hmm. solved product market fit. And like, there's, yes. there's all different kinds of businesses. Like if you're building like, uh, you know, like an HVAC company and you want to like scale it up to a national billion dollar HVAC company that yes. services HVAC units, like you don't need to verify product market fit. Like, you know, obviously yes. there's HVAC installations in every house and everyone has one and they break. So, uh, yeah. you know, like it's obvious there's product market fit there. You just need to be like competitive in the landscape and it's like price and service and quality and all, you know, sales capabilities. So there's no product market fit challenge there. Yes. But like yes. if you're building tech, especially platforms or SaaS, especially if it's like, you know, if you're if you're like number two in the market or number three in the market and there's already been a category created, then, you know, you have an idea of what product market fit looks like, but you still have to like prove that your product, like whatever you build, you have to prove that it has fit in the existing marketplace. Yes. But if you're like what all the advice you're saying, I think applies mostly to people who are creating new categories, like new platforms, new categories are defining a new market. And I 100% agree, do not do anything. If you're creating a new category, do not do anything until you have 100% confirmed product market fit. Yes. That's, that's yes, the only yes, problem yes. to solve. Like for step one, like the only thing to care about is product market fit. Yes, yes, agree. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm 100% I'm like aligned here with you. And I hope that people will uh, apply those feedbacks uh, to their daily routine and their life um, and their journey, startup journey. Um, and the next one will be that I have here on the list is prioritizing revenue over product. So a lot of times we were like, actually, no, 
Um, I just give it a thought, another thought, and uh, I'll probably skip this for now because I kind of changed my mind a little bit uh, afterwards. And I'm also curious uh, to hear your thoughts, but we had like a lot of times when uh, we were like too focused on the product, for example, and we just really forgot about the revenue. So we were just like building features like one by one, and we didn't really care about the revenue and making money. And another few months, we were focused only on revenue. So we didn't give a shit about the product at, uh, at all. So we're just, you know, like, how do we get more money this week, this month, and so on? Um, and I'm honestly not sure what is the right approach here. <laughs> so how do you, like, kind of, you know, balance those two things? Um, I honestly didn't really learn it because when I want to be focused on the product, I want to be focused on, like, building long-term features. When I want to be focused on revenue, I'm building, uh, like, very short-term. I'm just, like, hiring people. I'm pushing everyone, like, hey, you know, let's close this customer and so on. Maybe you have some advices here, but I still didn't learn anything um, with this how to how to overcome. Uh, yeah, I mean, ideally, like, we talked about multiple co-founders earlier. So, like, ideally, you have, like, a business-oriented co-founder who's often the CEO, yeah. and then you yeah. have a technical oriented founder who's often the CTO. I mean, the titles yeah. can be whatever, but often you have a technical co-founder and a business oriented co-founder. And there can be other, you know, if you have a three co-founder, maybe one's like more industries, maybe they, maybe they have some experience and connections in the industry you're going into, or there could be like other combinations. But if you're a two co-founder team building software, you should have a technical person and a business person. And I think in like pre-product market fit, the technical person should only be focused on building products and the C the the business co-founder should only be focused on like what the product should be like the vision for the product and then out there talking you know whether they're raising money whether they're trying to raise money whether they're like talking to customers potential customers interviewing potential customers lining up a sales pipeline whatever it is but they're kind of like that's the business person's probably more of a chief product officer at that stage like a like a product manager, like not even a chief product officer because it's a two person company. But yeah, the business person's more of a product manager slash like go to market person at that stage, and the technical person's just like a developer, like writing code. Uh, once you have the products and you have product market fit, or like you have a pretty sure bet that you have product market fit, then I think the CTO or the technical co founder then switches into focusing on products mm. instead of coding. The technical person mm -hmm. should focus on product as a whole, mm -hmm. including product management and coding. And then mm -hmm. the business person should focus only on sales, marketing and sales, like go to market and like fill the pipeline, get demos booked, get sales in the pipeline, you know, yeah. close the deals, get revenue, and then, you know, get feedback from the customers. But it's kind of like a dance where like the two founders are like, their roles evolve <laughs> as a company reaches new stages, the roles of the yes. founders evolve at each stage. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So with multiple people, it becomes like much easier, right? But like, what do you do when you are one person? <laughs> so that's that's basically crazy. That's like almost impossible. Uh, and maybe that's why. Uh, maybe that's why <laughs> why YC said that. Uh, yeah. No, uh, no companies with one person get to a billion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great shout out to uh, like people who actually you know manage to build huge successful companies by themselves, like solo. Basically, I think it's I think it's very hard and. Uh, um, you know, and yeah, shout out to them. Um, so yeah, quickly, since we have, we don't really have a lot of time to talk here, um, just a bunch of more advice is actually too, uh, which is like raising too much money and launching too early. Um, a little bit on the raising too much money is 
you do not really need money at all. So investors will just give you money when uh, you don't need them. Um, people don't think this is true, but it's actually true. Uh, this is like, you know, I think more than 90% of the money are raised when uh, they are not really needed. Um, and, uh, you know, investors are just like reaching out to you and like just offering them and just trying to, you know, to jump on your train of growth and so on. And um, I was like, you know, two years ago, I was like sitting in my apartment and thinking, okay, what will be the next step of this month? What should I do during the next month? And I was like, okay, I need to raise money. Why did I came to the conclusion? I honestly wasn't sure because I was thinking that everyone was raising money and maybe if everyone do, is doing that, maybe we should do that as well. So I just started to raise and uh, I eventually raised it, but it was, I kind of wouldn't do it uh, again if I wouldn't have like a very, very, very important reason to do so. So for example, maybe like I will need to buy some supercomputer, right? That's why I need to raise money uh, because you kind of cannot buy a supercomputer with your, I don't know, with $5,000 that you have on your bank account. Or maybe another reason is you need to buy a patent for your idea to work and so on. So that's why, that's a good reason. But if you don't really have anything like that, and if you can build something like next week and launch it and get traction, you would rather do that that way rather than raising money uh, instead. So a lot of people would disagree with me here. And uh, um, I would honestly disagree with myself if, we'll, if I would be watching this podcast uh, from the side, uh, because you know there are many different opinions. But uh, this is just kind of like the... Uh, the experience that I got after raising a bunch of money myself and talking to a lot of other successful people who built multi-billion dollar companies. Um, so basically take it or leave it. Um, and the last one, I think, and I will wrapping up my advices. I actually have eight more, but I think this one I'll just like stop because they are less relevant, which is uh, launching too early. Um, so a lot of times um, it is people are kind of like, okay, we cannot launch yet because we do not have a great product. So we need to build an amazing product first. And then, you know, once we launch it, you know, it will be a lot of hype and people will come and we'll start selling and so on, which is a huge mistake. Um, and Paul Graham, for example, he says, just like launch as fast as possible. And YC also says like launch next week and go from there, get feedback, etc. cetera. Uh, but also, and I did it all the time, honestly, like whenever we had some feature, we just like literally launched it. But there is also another side of this coin, which is, do not launch too early <laughs> and do not do not launch a ship. Uh, I would like, you know, uh, put it that way. And I'm sorry for my language, but I think it's just super important to differentiate like, you know, good from the bad. Um, and bad, what is bad is basically when you launch something and when you didn't even test it and people are just coming there and they're like, oh, wow, it doesn't work. Okay, you know, I will leave. And then you launch something again. And they come there again and they're like, oh, it doesn't work again. So I guess these guys are just launching bad products. I'll just stop checking them out. And uh, I think it happened to us as well because we were like, okay, you know, let's just launch fast. Like let's launch with um, bugs and then, you know, we'll fix them in the future. And it just ended up like every release that ended up with bugs and people were just disappointed with the quality. And I honestly was also disappointed with the quality because I was testing our own products and they were just contained with bugs. And uh, I think... People just got this picture that, okay, this brand is just like, you know, like broken and, uh, you know, we, we should just stop, stop checking their products, basically. Curious to hear your thoughts here, but this is kind of the experience I got. More bad products you launch, worse your reputation is, the less your conversions are. I would put it this way. 
Yeah. So I have a theory on this. Um, you know, there's all these like schools mm-hmm. of thought that say, you know, launch early, launch often, you know, speed to market, yeah. uh, which all that stuff is true. Like you have to be fast. You can't be slow. If you're slow, then you're ne- you're never going to go anywhere. So you still have to be action oriented. But I yeah. think a lot of these, like, you know, these theories of like, you're, you should be embarrassed of your first MVP. I think a lot yeah. of those came out in like the mid 2000s, like 2010, 2005, like, you know, Eric Rise with the Lean Startup had a lot of that yeah. stuff. Uh, Paul Graham said a lot of that stuff in the early days of YC. That was like 2010, 2005, like early days of YC. Uh, and back then the internet was so different. Like, you know, the, like the top, you, if you, if you go to waybackmachine. you know, or archive.org, whatever yeah. it is, and you look at amazon.com in 2005, it was yeah, a really but, crappy website, man. Like you go to yeah. eBay.com in 2005, like, dude, it was a really bad website. Like it really looked like crap compared to like what the internet looks like today. Yeah. And uh, so like consumer, like user expectations were low uh, in those years compared to what they are now. Like nowadays we've got like decoupled, you know, front end application architecture. We've got microservices architecture, like, you know, products are just really sophisticated these days. And yeah. uh, like, you know, you know, users are comparing your product to, you know, some of the best products out there. Like they're comparing it to, you know, products like Instagram or like Gmail or, you know, like, you know, if you're in business space, they're comparing it to HubSpot or like QuickBooks or like, you know, some of these really mature products that have a lot of features they are really refined, they're bug free uh, for the most part. And, uh, you know, so that's what users are comparing everything to. Like they're like, everyone's expecting you to have Facebook level engineering quality. And uh, so I think that 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 like concept of launching your MVP that you should be embarrassed with it. I think that's mm. an aged. I think that concept is aged out. I think um, mm. I think it's still it's still important to be fast, but you need to be fast and good. You can't be you can't yeah. just be fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think you're pretty much right. Um, I'm uh, not very sure like where we are in that stage uh, in terms of like can we still launch bad products <laughs> or we should just launch everything perfect right away. Not perfect. Um, perfect is the yeah, death yeah. of good. Like perfect is yeah. perfect is the death yeah. of good. Like good, good yeah. is good enough, but you can't be bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like also very important to note where that border is. Like right, where is like good, like enough and bad completely. <laughs> so it's very important to differentiate. But overall, I would agree probably with you. Yeah, because like much earlier, it was much harder to launch, and uh, you know you had to put much more effort. And if something wouldn't work, it's kind of okay because we all knew how hard it was. Now it's much easier. So people expect to the quality bar to be a bit, um, you know, above. Um, so probably, you're, yeah, you're right. Um, and I would 100% agree here. Uh, but wrapping it up, those are all, like those are eight, I think eight, right? Um, eight of my top advices. I have eight more, but those are less prioritized. I think people will need to remember them. And again, just like to summarize, uh, don't scale before a good product. Uh, don't hire uh, just for as long as you can, and when you are, hire the best people possible. Do not start with a single fo- as a single founder. Uh, don't be attached to a specific idea. Don't spend too much time. Uh, sorry, don't spend too much money. Uh, do not prioritize revenue over product, and do not prioritize product over revenue. Try to mix them together. And ideally, if you have multiple co-founders, that they could work on multiple things. Um, 
like do not raise too much money when you don't need it. Um, don't raise money just for fun, basically, and because of other people are raising. And uh, do not launch like crap, basically. <laughs> so that will be top eight prioritized. So the first one I said is the top one, and the, the last one is like the less important, in my opinion, at least to my majority. So hope it was useful for other people as well. Yeah, man. So as we're wrapping up here, um, speaking of launching, uh, you just launched something new. Uh, do you yeah. want to get into that here and tell people what, what you just built and launched? Yeah, we, um, I'm working on two ideas simultaneously and hopefully we'll be able to attach a couple of links under the podcast video of like a one minute demo so that people could take a look. Uh, but in short, one of them is a smart glass um, with a, a personal uh, AI assistant that just uh, lives inside of your smart glasses and sees everything that you see. And another idea is another recruitment startup, which is um, like LinkedIn, but uh, not employee driven, but employer driven, where people, founders, recruiters share referrals to each other and uh, can like very easily and in a faster way hire people. So for example, if it takes 80 hours on average to hire a person from outbound, it takes four hours on average to hire a person from your friend because it's the person is already trustable. And the only thing you need to do is just like to do a very small trial with them and just go from there. Um, and this is the exact idea that I'm doing, but on scale. So like, how do you hire from your friends? Uh, but like, not just like, in, you know, in DMs and like iMessages, like asking for referrals and so on, but like on scale, how do you do it like, you know, in a huge way. So those two ideas and uh, looking for potential co-founders both there and there. So if you are a very great go-to-market person interested in recruitment, please hit me up. If you are thinking that um, we are on the shifting uh, kind of like border into VR, AR stuff, and uh, if you know how to do hardware or AI, please also hit me up um, because that will be very relevant for the AR, VR markets as themselves. And I'm also working on a game for fun. Um, so uh, this is like kind of like GTA 5 in the metaverse. Uh, very curious to where and where it will go. But for that, I'm just mostly, you know, talking to investors and so because that game requires a lot of capital. Um, so that's kind of it. Hopefully we'll attach a bunch of links um, in, in, in YouTube. <laughs> yeah, man. Email uh, me the links you want you want in the show okay. notes because we'll put all those in. And uh, Nick, awesome. this this was a hell of an episode, man. You, you got a lot of stuff. Awesome. You got a lot of really awesome stuff. How how can people connect with you if they want to reach out and uh, and talk to you about like a yeah, co-founder or... Yeah, I will attach my site and uh, on the site you'll see my email basically and uh, a lot of other social networks. The best way to do is email because I never miss email, um, usually. <laughs> At least I'm trying my best. I try my best. So yeah, I'll put my site and there you'll find my email as well. There we go. That's the show. <laughs>